We've all seen the port congestion. We've heard about supply chain disruptions. Many of us have noticed prices are rising. So inflation is well underway. But what can be done about it? I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Sohab Shahed, Director of Economic Innovation at the Conference Board of Canada. Sohab said the inflation is a classic case of supply and demand mismatch. It's the highest it's been in three decades. It's not going away anytime soon. And people are going to start feeling it more and more as 2022 gets underway, he predicted. So we talked about that, rising interest rates, deglobalization, and much more. As always, this interview was edited for clarity and brevity. So, hey, thanks a lot for joining me today on Down to Business. My pleasure. Inflation seems to be the topic du jour. And basically, things are getting more expensive, gas, groceries, housing. The last time I checked, people were saying this is going to be transitory. Basically, it's a hangover from the economy shutting down and reopening. Something's changed. This week, the U.S. Treasury Secretary said she's ready to retire that word transitory. So some people think that things are going to be a lot more expensive, at least in 2022. Are you convinced of that? Gabe, the inflation we are seeing today is a textbook supply and demand story. You know, when you have too much money chasing too few goods, you get higher prices. There's not one reason for this, but several reasons, you know, both on the supply side and the demand side that are affecting inflation. Global supply chain disruptions, pent-up consumer demand, higher shelter costs, higher energy prices, and the massive fiscal spending the government undertook to fight the pandemic-induced crisis. Just to put things in perspective, inflation has been above the Bank of Canada's upper target range of 3% for seven months now. The last time inflation was above 3% for this long was three decades ago. And as you rightly pointed out, there's been a lot of talk about inflation being transitory or not. From an economic perspective, something is transitory when people don't change their behavior. But you're seeing businesses and consumers changing their behavior. So I think it's high time we drop the word transitory from our lexicon uh, when talking about inflation. Okay. Well, so what is an appropriate timeline? Because I I looked a little bit at some of the articles about this and people were saying, this is going to be here for at least another six more months. I think some people panic that we're going to be dealing with this for the next decade. Is there an appropriate length of time we should be thinking that prices are going to be rising? Well, let's start from where we are today. The latest inflation figure is 4.7%. Canadians can expect inflation to be closer to 5% as we approach the end of this year. So over the next year, inflation could be closer to 35 to 4%. And though that number might not you know, seem like a lot, it will feel like a lot, especially given the fact that average inflation during the decade prior to the pandemic was under 1.5%. So inflation in the coming months will be a lot more than what Canadians are used to. But what concerns me the most, Gabe, are inflation expectations, which are on the rise Inflation expectations are simply the rate at which Canadians expect prices to rise in the future. So if inflation expectations keep rising, high inflation might become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Just to give an example, at the Conference Board of Canada, we conduct both business surveys and uh, consumer surveys. The latest index of business confidence tells us that 50% of businesses expect inflation to be higher than 5% over the next six months. Consumers tell us that uh, inflation, in their opinion, will be above 5%. So that's almost a third of consumers telling us that inflation will be above 5% three years from now. 
So those are not small numbers. So I'm sure the Bank of Canada is keeping a watchful eye on inflation expectations as we move forward. Yeah, I just want to pause a second. Those are a lot of numbers, 1.5, 3. Can we just go over a second sort of how these are being measured and why 2% is better than 1%? It, it all feels sometimes a bit abstract. Well, you know, if you look at the Bank of Canada's mandate, uh, the bank targets inflation at 2% within the 1% to 3% range. Yeah. And one of the reasons it does that is because you know higher prices are not good for the average Canadian. The thing with inflation is that it hits low-income Canadians the hardest. You know, the reason for that is that low-income Canadians spend a larger proportion of their total expenditure on shelter than high-income Canadians. They also spend a larger share of their spending on food. Um, similarly, when energy prices go up, once again, it's the low-income households that are hit the hardest because they can't afford to live in houses that are as energy efficient as the houses of the high income. So whichever way you slice it, it's the low-income Canadians that are bearing the brunt of higher prices, which is also why it's important for us to curb higher prices going forward. And by the way, higher prices also exacerbate the inequalities that exist in our society for the reasons that I just shared. Right. You know, I wanted to pose a question to you. So we had this sort of supply chain snarl that started with the pandemic and the classic supply and demand mismatch. But just looking at energy prices, those went up and, you know, our Canadian exports went up. And that was sort of because the whole COVID situation eased a bit, vaccinations and whatnot. Now we have this Omicron variant. And I'm just wondering if we could get trapped in this cycle of kind of prices going up, prices going down, supply and demand mismatched. Well, you know, uh, Gabe, as you said, you know, the Canadian economy has been having a bit of a stop and go recovery. You know, it keeps taking two steps forward and then one step back. And as far as the economic outlook goes, there's both good news and bad news. Let me first give you some of the bad news. You know, even though supply chain disruptions are showing some early signs of easing globally, I expect these disruptions to last you know, well into uh, next year. According to a survey we conducted, more than 75% of businesses expect supply chain disruptions to worsen or remain the same. Meanwhile, inflation is likely to remain elevated in the coming months, and high inflation will eat into Canadians' incomes and push economic growth lower. Now, Flooding in BC will also hurt near-term growth since it has damaged highways, um, disrupted rail service, closed the Trans-Mountain Pipeline, and cut off the port of Vancouver from the rest of Canada. Uh, you also mentioned the Omicron variant uh, in Canada, which isn't good news either. So I don't see widespread lockdowns this time around, but the emergence of the Omicron variant could dampen consumer and business confidence, which could hurt economic growth. The good news is that Canadian households are in good shape. They still have a lot of savings which they can put towards spending. Job opportunities are also growing and the labor market is strengthening. The economy added more than 150,000 jobs in November. That's a big number. But all in all, the headwinds facing the economy are overpowering tailwinds. Uh, and, and as a result, economic growth will be slower than previously expected as far as next year is concerned. Right. So given that we have visibility and there seems to be some consensus that this inflation will be here for more than what we would call a transitory period, what are the policies you expect the government to enact? Well, you know, they're both supply side and demand side issues that are causing inflation. 
And when it comes to the supply side issues, the government can't do much in the short run. Having said that, you know, they can do a lot more when it comes to the surging demand caused by the fiscal support. The government has to be very careful not to overstimulate the economy any further. A large chunk of the $101 billion in additional spending announced by the government hasn't yet been spent. So the government should ask itself how, when, and where it will spend the remaining amount. Any additional spending should go towards increasing the economy's productivity and away from supporting more consumption or towards sectors that are facing labor shortages. Uh, and I think the government should also adopt an aggressive timeline for reducing debt so that Canada can better handle any future economic downturns. And future you know, downturns in the economy are not a matter of if, they are a matter of when. Yeah. I remember talking to economists earlier in this pandemic who talked about how uneven the effects were, right? For many of us, it's been pretty much life as normal. I think on balance, a lot of people were able to save more money, actually. But there is this other category of people who work in service industries or places that have really been shut down by the pandemic. Is it going to be that easy to sort of, you know, stop consumption or is the consumption happening amongst a group of people who the government really has no control over? You know, when the pandemic hit, countries were spending left, right and center to stave off the pandemic induced economic crisis and to protect the vulnerable segments of the society. And Canada was no exception. And a lot of that spending had to be done. You know, there's no doubt about it. In fact, at the height of the pandemic, even the International Monetary Fund tore up its rule book and encouraged countries to spend. Having said that, you know, too much of anything is a bad thing, as they say. Our economy is around $2 trillion, and the federal level fiscal support has been well above $350 billion. So that's a lot of money. And a lot of this fiscal support led to a lot of money being transferred to Canadians' pockets. So incomes actually went up last year, which is odd for a recession. So Canadians saved up that extra money, and now that the economy has been opening, Canadians want to spend. So the strong demand is interacting with weak supply, pushing prices higher. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. Switching for a second to central banks, I know that the Bank of Canada and others are talking about raising interest rates soon. Can you talk about what factors you think our Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem may be weighing as he debates whether to raise interest rates? Well, you know, just like uh, fiscal policymakers, the Bank of Canada is in a difficult position. You know, they are stuck between a rock and a hard place. You know, if they raise rates faster, curb inflation, they risk stalling growth. On the other hand, if they prefer to see growth become more sustainable, they risk seeing prices go up even higher. So getting the timing right is absolutely key. You know, recent positive developments in the labor market mean that the Bank of Canada is likely to strike a hawkish tone in its upcoming statement. Now, when the Bank of Canada does increase interest rates, that servicing costs will go up. So not just for the government and provinces who are already highly indebted, but also for the Canadian households that are living under massive debt burdens. My concern is that when interest rates do go up, Canadians, especially low-income Canadians, will be squeezed when it comes to renewing their mortgages. The share of new variable rate mortgages is more than 50% in Canada. Keep in mind that it was only 10% in early 2020. So when interest rates go up, households holding variable rate mortgages will see their mortgage payments go up as well. 
And remember, it's not just what happens in Canada that increases our borrowing cost. What happens south of our border impacts us too. So if the bond market thinks the U.S. Fed will hike sooner to control inflation, mortgage rates in Canada could also rise sooner. Now, the pressure is building up on the Bank of Canada to hike interest rates sooner. There are several reasons for this, including surging employment figures, significant labor shortages, the the hot housing market, and inflation that is at a 20-year high. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about inflation, we're talking about interest rates, we talk about surging jobs. But oftentimes when people talk about the state of our economy, it does take on a sort of negative tone. Inflation itself seems to be like an example of this. It just seems like things don't work the way they should. Like supply and demand doesn't work. You'd think if housing is really hot, you'd build enough supply so that more people could afford to buy houses and everybody would win. Same thing with the port congestion. Like for months now, we've been seeing pictures of boats outside ports waiting to unload. These all seem like symptoms of this broader trend that our economy is just not working right. And I'm wondering if you think there are any big structural issues in our economy that we need to address, you know, once we get past some of the sort of short-term challenges. Absolutely, Gabe. I think you hit the nail on the head with that. Uh, You know, one of the things that the pandemic has done is that it has reminded us about our reliance, for example, on efficient rather than resilient supply chains. You know, you alluded to uh, port congestions and the fact that, you know, now that demand is surging, uh, a lot of ports don't have capacity. And since last year, we're seeing supply chains being disrupted. So I think going forward, there needs to be a deeper rethink on supply chains and just, quite frankly, the usual way of doing things. So as far as supply chains are concerned, let's just you know dig deeper into those. You know, there are a few things that businesses can do to become more resilient in the face of a future shock. Number one, you know, they could invest in technology, especially digital technologies for more agile management of supply chains. They could also conduct stress tests to help make more informed decisions, just like banks have been doing stress tests after the global financial crisis. Businesses might have to as well. You know, they could also build more redundancies in the supply chains. Uh, And, you know, an example of uh, building redundancies would be, you know, holding on to more inventory, for example, or sourcing material from multiple suppliers or not operating at too much capacity. A lot of these things can be done going forward, but none of them are easy. And by the way, as businesses make their supply chains more resilient, that will also put upward pressure on prices going forward and will increase inflation in the coming years. That sounds like an interesting sort of vicious circle almost, but I wanted to ask you a follow-up about that. There are things that businesses can do to make the supply chain more resilient, but we're now, I guess, coming up on two years into the pandemic, and it feels like people aren't necessarily making these investments. Like, Do you think investors are open to the type of costs that those changes would bring? I think investors and businesses are aware of the need to make the supply chains resilient. But at the same time, you know, these things are not easy. Yes, you know, larger companies can do this more easily. But what about the small and medium enterprises? For them, it is a lot more difficult to do this because, you know, making supply chains resilient also could mean that businesses would have to live with thinner profit margins. And that might be fine for the larger companies, but uh, a lot of small businesses already operate under thin margins. You know, there's a lot of talk uh, recently on, uh, you know, moving supply chains away from China as well. But here as well, it is 
almost impossible for a lot of small businesses to do this. And uh, this is just because of how deeply ingrained China is when it comes to you know, global supply chains. This is not to say that uh, you know, the bigger, uh, larger businesses won't be able to do this, but I think the smaller ones would find it much more difficult. Yeah, there is a lot of talk about moving away from dependency on China and maybe chatter about sort of deglobalization. It also seems like protectionism is on the rise. You know, there's a battle right now in Washington about, you know, the infrastructure bill about buy American and whether or not this would hurt the Canadian auto industry. How concerned are you about bigger forces like that? You know, this is uh, an interesting, you know, point, Dave, because even before the pandemic hit, we were experiencing some deglobalization pressures. These protectionist tendencies that you mentioned started well before the pandemic. And so if you look at the data from uh, you know, the U.S. and China, both of these countries were becoming more inward looking even before the pandemic hit. And this, you know, this protectionism and U.S.-China decoupling, you know, was leading to a restructuring or rethinking of supply chains even before the current disruptions started to take place. Um, and I think going forward, the world will become more and more bipolar, which also means that some of the multilateral institutions that governed international trade, such as the World Trade Organization, won't be as effective. And I think this has implications for Canada as well. You know, in the coming years, we'll see the U.S. and China, you know, vie for dominance, you know, when it comes to politics and economics. And I think, you know, I'm concerned that Canada might be caught in the middle. A good example of this is you know, China's re- recent uh, overtures towards joining the uh, CPTPP, the Comprehensive Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, of which Canada is a member, but the United States is not. At the same time, Canada and the United States are part of the new NAFTA, the Canada-U.S.-Mexico trade agreement. And when that agreement was signed, the Americans wanted the Canadians and Mexicans to agree on a clause that said that if Canada negotiated trade agreements with a non-market economy, namely China, then the U.S. would be able to extract concessions within the Kuzma framework. So I think going forward, Canada would have to tread very carefully as it negotiates between these two powers. Yeah. We have time for maybe one more question. Oftentimes, I think you're weighing in on things like job reports or these sort of what I will say are transitory sort of stats on the economy. Is there a bigger issue or trend out there that that keeps you up at night? I think, you know, the biggest trend that concerns me is something that uh, you already spoke about, Gabe, which is these deglobalization and protectionist tendencies and the fact that we are increasingly living in, you know, in a, in a bipolar world uh, because, you know, history tells us that, uh, you know, globalization and deglobalization come and go in cycles. This is not the first time we're seeing deglobalization pressures build up. And history also tells us that whenever there are protectionist tendencies that come about, countries have more incentive to uh, engage in conflict. Now, this is not to say that this could be economic conflict or even uh, military conflict. So, you know, the more countries are interdependent on each other through trade, the less the risk of conflict. So that is what is most concerning to me. I think right now we are, you know, busy fighting the pandemic. But I think once the dust settles from this pandemic, we realize that uh, we are living in a very bipolar and increasingly divided world. There's so much to talk about, but I 
Really appreciate you coming on the show, Sohabe, and sharing all your thoughts with us. Thanks for having me. That was Sohabe Shahed, Director of Economic Innovation at the Conference Board of Canada. You're listening to original music composed and performed by producer Bryce Hall, and this show was edited by Yadula Hussein with web support from Pamela Heaven. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. Until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com or any of our five weekly newsletters delivered straight to your inbox and covering the economy, energy, finance, investing, and the workplace.